And I thought that my, my life in ministry was over. I thought that maybe I couldn't pursue the Lord how I felt called to do. But the Lord has reminded me continually of his grace. And that there is hope for each one of us. That every breath is a second chance. And so I, I come to this message this morning with, with, with deep affection for, for each one of you and deep understanding uh, of the struggle in this area. Uh, and we talked about the news headlines last week, and the, the news isn't any better. Uh, isn't any more encouraging, is it? Uh, and sometimes, you know, people wonder, you know, given, given all that's going on in the world, should we really be spending time talking about rules around sexuality? Shouldn't the church be focusing on more maybe pressing issues? Shouldn't the church just kind of, you know, leave consenting adults alone and let them do what they want? I mean, does God really care about what we do with our bodies? Well, my answer, and I believe Scripture's answer, is a resounding yes. Why? Because God cares about you. And God wants you to flourish. And God cares about our world. He cares about society. He cares about people. And he wants his world to flourish as much as possible. And living out God's uh, outside of God's design for sexuality is destructive to us, to people, to the church, to society as a whole. You know, in our, in our church's Bible reading plan, if you're, if you're following along with us, we, we just recently read through the story of King David. Now, that's a real uplifting story, is it not? And many don't know the story of David. He was a lonely shepherd boy. He was the youngest of all his brothers. But God anointed him. God called him to be the next king of Israel in place of Saul. And David had a close relationship with God. That's why God called him, right? Because Samuel said the Lord looks at the heart. He was a worshiper. He was a musician. He wrote much of the Psalms that we find in our scriptures. He walked with God. And David continued to rise. He became known as a mighty warrior in battle. He was strong. He was savvy. He was wise. He famously defeated Goliath when no one had the boldness or the courage to do so. He stepped up and believed that the God of Israel was going to help him. And then he became, becomes the king in the place of Saul, and he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. To all of that fanfare, right? When he's, he's dancing and, and people are, are criticizing him for it, he says, I'm going to be more undignified than this. Because he wanted to praise his God. So all of this is going on, and everyone, except for King Saul, loved David. <laughs> they loved David. They were singing his praises. But then, one fateful day, one fateful moment, David would make a choice that would cause the implosion of his own life, of his family, and of the people of God. David would normally have been supporting the soldiers out in battle, leading the charge. But for some reason, David decided to remain home in Jerusalem. And it says, one evening he got up from his bed, he was walking around the roof of the palace, and from the roof he sees a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now this is the moment where the tempter comes. The temptation has set in. And then it says, David sent someone to find out about her. Well, now, David could have stopped before, but now he's curious. He's mulling it over. He's wondering what he might be able to do to, to actualize his desire. And he could have also stopped there. But then he sends some people to find out about her, and the man comes back and says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, this should have given David more pause, right? He hears that Bathsheba, she's, she's someone's daughter. She's someone's wife. She belongs to another. He should have, he should have stopped right then. He should have stopped at the first, first moment, but he's gone too far in his mind already. The desire has already set in. 
So David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now, later on, the Bible makes very clear that all of this, whoo, that all of this was David's fault. That, that Bathsheba was a victim of his lust and his abuse of power. And God, the Bible says God was not pleased with David. God punishes David. And from this moment on, everything in David's life gets incredibly broken. And you ask, well, what happened to this, to this man who was a man after God's own heart? What, what happened to this, his close relationship God? What, what, how, what happened here? Well, the Bible says in James 1, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Sin wants to drag you away, to drag you away from life and into death. That's how the enemy works. Sin is like that Turkish delight that was offered to Edmund in the, in the Chronicles of, of Narnia, where it, it looked good, it, it, it tasted good, but what was happening? Actually, the witch was gaining more power over him. And in the end, it makes him sick. See, sin looks good. You think it will be good, and for a moment, it is good, but in the end, it makes you sick, and you have more, less control over your life. And that's the problem. In, in the moment, sin and temptation will cause you to forget about and to disregard the death and destruction that you're going to unleash in your life. And you know the story. Bathsheba gets pregnant. David wasn't thinking about that. But then he tries to cover it up. Then he gets Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed in battle. I mean, this brief moment of temptation where a choice could have been made, it's now turned into adultery, abuse, and murder. David has ruined Bathsheba's life. He has ruined his own life. And after this, his own, his own family implodes. Uh, his son Absalom revolts against him. Uh, he takes his concubines from him. He takes the kingdom from him. Civil war literally breaks out between the people of God. I mean, people are dying and losing their lives, including David's own son Absalom, who dies in battle. Death, violence, war, a broken family, a tarnished legacy. It affected the, uh, affected the entire people of God. Friend, let me just remind you this morning here, sin is never private. It's never individual. It will always affect you and the others around you. And you, it, we will reap the consequences of it at some point. Um, our sin will find us out. And you probably could think of people in your own life where uh, lust has, has ruined their own lives, it has ruined families. Um, people have ruined relationships because of, of lust and adultery and addictions and easy divorce and more. You know, I didn't really need to give you a story from the Bible because many of you have your own personal stories um, where you know that this is, this is true, this is the case. Because unfortunately, this is all too common. It's all too common. And like every command God gives, it's for our good. It's for our flourishing. In the command against adultery, it was always meant to protect the people of God as a whole, to protect marriages, to protect children, ideally who grow up with the same married mother and father, to keep lust and adultery from destroying people's lives. That was the intention of this command. You know, last week we talked about anger being at the, the, the root cause of the violence and the murder we see in our world. You know, Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, in the same way, in that famous sermon, he talks about how lust is at the root of, of adultery and other marital problems in society. And so we're going to look at what Jesus says. We're going to look at a few other passages this morning. 
Uh, but I want to talk about some things that we can do, um, not only to protect ourselves, but also to promote the well-being of the people around us so that lust doesn't destroy your life or other people's lives. So there's three things we're going to talk about today. One is we're going to kill lustful desire, we're going to offer our bodies to God, and we're going to uphold the sacredness of marriage and sexuality. So number one, we're going to kill off lustful desire. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, and he quotes the seventh commandment here, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus, he quotes the commandment. He had said he's not come to abolish the law, but he's come to fulfill it. And he's fulfilling it here. He gets to the core of the problem. It's lust in the human heart. Now, lust is, simply, uh, is not simply noticing someone's beauty. It's not even the temptation to lust. Lust is the intentional act to gaze upon someone else or to dwell in the mind upon someone else in order to gratify yourself. Jesus says, that's wrong. Don't do this. In other words, we learn from Jesus Christ that not all the sexual desires that we have are good and not all of them are to be expressed or even thought about. Now, I want to be clear that God created us. He created sexuality. He deemed it very good. He designed it to be expressed between a husband and a wife who become one flesh. In fact, the Bible encourages husbands and wives to enjoy this gift. Go read the Song of Solomon. Even Proverbs says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. There's this, there's this idea to, to enjoy what God has given. And I think we get, trupped, uh, get tripped up in this area because uh, we focus on what God has said no to rather than all the things that we do get to enjoy that God has given. You know, I think about Adam and Eve in the garden. They could eat from any tree in the garden. God had made this beautiful world for them to live in. And that they could go and enjoy. There was so much freedom and joy and peace there. But they got enticed by the one thing God said no to. They were not grateful for what God did allow them to enjoy. And the fruit that they weren't allowed to eat, it looked pleasing to the eye. It would give them wisdom. It didn't seem like it would harm them or anyone else. It seemed like it would bring them happiness. And they had to make a choice. Would they allow God to determine good and evil, right from wrong? Or would they determine it for themselves? Because the eating of this fruit, especially after they hear the temptation, it seems like to them no big deal. They, they, they desired it. I mean, hadn't God just created them? This is before, there hasn't been a fall yet. So if these desires are within Eve, it says she desires it, well, didn't God put it there? Didn't God create her with that? Didn't God want her to be happy? What harm could it really do? And Eve, Adam and Eve, they chose their desire. And it brought about not just their own death, their own exile from the Garden of Eden, but it brought about, about the fall of all of humanity. Now, that's a choice with a lot of consequences. But sin will always cause more havoc and harm than you anticipate. And like Adam and Eve, we seek, when we seek to gratify our, our, our desires outside how God designed it, this is what Jesus calls lust. The world says our desires, the, our desires in general are good, they're essential to our happiness, they're core to our humanity, and that it's probably harmful to repress our desires. Denying yourself would be harmful. Expressing yourself will bring happiness. That's the view of the world. So as long as you have consenting adults, fine, you're, that's going to make you happy. But the world is choosing the fruit that God said not to eat. 
There are desires within us not from God. And they are not according to his will or according to our flourishing. And so the very first step in this area is to discern your desires and to recognize the evil desires within us and to do something about it. We must recognize as Christians that thoughts and desires can come into our mind and heart not because they are core to our personhood, but because sin is within us and because of the world's and other influence around us and even, as we sang earlier, the temptation of the enemy. The evil one, he doth seek to work us woe. He's a powerful enemy that wants to bring death and destruction into our lives. And we know that God's word says he created this this gift, sexuality, to be expressed in the union of husband and wife. And so therefore we refrain from nurturing and acting on desires contrary to his will. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, Put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now the wrath of God we mentioned last week means, often means the judgment of God. God is going to judge these things, including greed, mind you. We'll talk about that in a future sermon. Now, desires and temptations are going to emerge in the human heart. That's just, that's just reality on this side of heaven. But the question is, what will we do with those? How do we handle these things? You know, sometimes I wonder what would have happened if David had made a different choice. I mean, what would, what would the books of First and Second Samuel and the Kings be if David had decided to not make the choice to commit adultery with Bathsheba? We'd have a very different Bible. And I thought about, well, what could have David done instead? And I just started brainstorming some of the options that, that David could have decided to do instead. Well, number one, he could have decided to stop looking. He could have just gone inside. He could have remembered the example of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. He could have just, just ran out of there. He could have cried out to God. He could have read the word of God. He could have talked to the prophet Nathan or, or, or the priests or a friend. He could have gone and worshipped in God's presence. He could have written a psalm. He, he could have gone and, and played on his instrument to be in God's presence. He could have gone and checked on the troops. He could have gone for a walk and talked with God. He could have remembered that Bathsheba is a person loved by God who is a daughter and a wife. He could have thought about the consequences of his actions and not just what he wanted in the moment. He could have th think about all that would be ruined and how it won't actually make him happy. And now that we have the Holy Spirit, we ourselves, we can ask the Holy Spirit for self-control. There are so many things he could have chosen to do and so many things we could choose to do instead. And our first step is to address those lustful desires in the heart and to make a good, wise choice. We've got to kill off lustful desire. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to offer our bodies back to God. Offer your body back to God. Now, I hear people say things like, you know, God doesn't really care about what we do with our bodies. Uh, but saying our bodies don't matter is, is really a new form of an ancient heresy called Gnosticism that separated body and spirit. I said, as long as you're right in the heart and you, as, long as, you have, as long as you have the proper knowledge, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. That was a teaching that was going around. Now, in the passage that was, that was read earlier, that Judy read, Paul is quoting some common things people were saying. And sometimes this is a good practice. What are people saying? What is the world saying? But what does God say? 
So the people were saying, I have the right to do anything. I'm free to do anything. But then Paul says, well, not everything is beneficial. People were saying, I have the, uh, I have the right to do anything. But Paul says, but you will not be mastered by anything. People were saying that food is for the stomach and stomach is for food. In other words, that I have this desire to eat. God made food, so therefore we should be allowed to partake of it. If I have this desire and there's a means to fulfill that desire, then we should be allowed to fulfill it. But, but Paul says, no, the body, however, is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So he goes on to say, flee from sexual morality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You see, Paul corrects their misunderstanding and gives them a proper identity. The world is saying what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. But the Bible says, actually, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It does matter. The world is saying we, we, we own our bodies and we can do with them whatever we want. But the Bible says, no, you don't even own your own body. Your body belongs to the Lord. So therefore, honor God with your body. You can't just do what you want. The world says our sexual desires are, are part of our identity. They're core to who we are. But the Bible says our identity is one in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, who wants you to have holy desires. The world says we can love and sleep with whoever we want, as long as they're consenting. But the Bible says God created sexuality to be expressed in the covenant of marriage of man and woman for the flourishing of creation, for the generations to come, for all the children who will be born to come into the world in the context of this loving covenant. So because of Jesus Christ, we stop offering our bodies to sin, but we offer them to God. So that's the choice. You're either going to offer your body to serve your desires or you're going to offer your body to serve God. Who is going to be your God? The Apostle Paul says a similar thing in Romans 6. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So we must turn from using our bodies for sin to using them for righteousness. And in today's digital age, we have to, we have to protect what our eyes literally see. Now, we have kids in the room, so I'm not going to go into all the details, but you all know what I'm talking about. What people can access online these days, it's, it's, it's degrading to humanity. It is destructive to your soul. It can destroy your marriage. It literally harms your own body because we, we now know it changes the wiring and things in your brain. So you're harming your own body by participating in this destructive thing. And if you're here this morning and you're secretly struggling with this sin and you, and you're, you feel ashamed, I just want to invite you today, you need to tell somebody. You need to come out of the dark. Sin thrives in the dark, but it begins to find healing in the light. Tell a friend. You can tell me. I'd be glad to help you. We want to show you grace and to help you find freedom. We want to help you stop offering your body to lustful desires and instead offer them to God for his purposes. And I think there's wisdom in what Paul says there. You know, using your body as an instrument of righteousness. You know, if you're... Uh, 
I think that is one of the key things we can do to, to help us in this, in this area. When you're using your, your body to serve others, if you're, if you're busy worshiping God and serving, there won't be, honestly, as much opportunity for the devil. This may seem like a, 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 small, a small point, but David was supposed to be off with the soldiers, leading them, supporting them. What was he doing? He was just being idle. He was just, he was just lying around, doing nothing. And the devil came and took that as an opportunity. So idleness, laziness, isolation, these can be breeding grounds for sin to emerge if we're not careful. And so, so some of you might need to fight lust honestly by using your body to serve others, to, to get away from your phone, to get off the couch, get away from your computer, and be at church serving, be serving in your, in your community, being active. And that actually forms you into the type of person who loves God and loves others and can resist temptation. So we turn from death to life, from slavery to sin, to freedom in Christ. So finally, I invite you to uphold the sacredness of marriage and sexuality. This command was given 3,000 years ago so that the people of God would honor and protect each other's marriages. The scholar Patrick Miller says this, The focus is upon how we covenant together to support and protect one another. The character of the commandments are setting up responsibilities towards the other and the neighbor is never more apparent than in this instance. As these obligations are taken up mutually, then the marriage and family of all members of the community are protected from harm. So the people of God, they're called to support and protect the marriage covenants of all. In fact, Hebrews 13.4 captures this sentiment well. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The marriage of husband and wife should be honored because it is a sacred covenant. It should be kept pure and undefiled. And there is the threat of judgment for dishonoring these covenants and for all sexual immorality. That means singleness is included in this as well. We ought to honor singleness as a, as a vocation as well, whether chosen or unchosen, recognizing that singles will also face unique challenges that married people don't face. And so the church must support both married and single as we seek to live into holy sexuality. It's the church's job to uphold the sacredness of these things. You know, it, this is not a popular teaching to, uh, today. Um, and to be honest with you, it's not that easy for me to get up here and say that we need to do this. I don't, I, take, I don't take a lot of joy in that, but I do it because I believe it's right. And I believe it's good. And I believe it's something we need to do. And for husbands and wives, that's, that starts with honoring your own marriage covenant. On this Reformation Sunday, I got to quote Martin Luther, who always boils down the good, the both negative and the positive aspects of the commands. And he says, this command means that we should fear and love God so that we, we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and the husband and wife are to love and honor each other. There's the positive aspect that Luther gets to. We're to honor our spouse. We're to keep investing in the relationship. We are to rejoice in one another, be grateful. We are to forgive. We are to keep working on it. And our problems, we're to enjoy one another. And we encourage you to rely upon the church and other resources when you need help. You know, Jesus had also 
words to say about the problem of lust uh, and other things causing easy divorce, which we don't have a lot of time to get into today, but uh, breaking up a marriage simply because you wanted to or because you wanted to be with another person because of your lustful desires. Uh, Again, we're not talking about abuse, neglect, or even adultery, which was, Jesus said, was an exception. But Jesus said some people at that time, they were getting legally divorced, that the law said, as long as you write a certificate of divorce, you're fine. But Jesus says, no, some of you, you're, you're breaking off your marriage covenant because of your lust, because of your greed, because of your selfish desires. And that is what uh, Jesus is attacking in that passage, I believe, this easy divorce. Because when you do that, you're making your spouse the victim of adultery. You're breaking it off. These are the situations we want to prevent and to avoid. And so in the church, we ought to do what we can to support the thriving of our marriages, the thriving of our singles as well, to promote the well-being of these things. It's also a way of preventing sin from happening as well. So despite what's going on in the world, living outside of God's boundaries for marriage and sexuality, that's a part of the total brokenness that we see in our world. And so we're called to kill off these lustful desires, to stop offering our bodies to sin, instead offer them to God, and finally we're to uphold the sacredness of marriage and sexuality. And friends, sometimes I just hope you hear my, my heart in this. This is, this is personal to me. Um, I, don't, uh, I don't just teach these things because I'm just trying to explain the Bible to you, but I really care for the flourishing of the church and of your, and of your lives. You know, I, I have a good friend, one of, one of my close friends, uh, who, is a minute, who was in ministry. A couple years ago, he messed up his life pretty bad because of sexual sin. The church found out about it. He was obviously fired. This was a person you would not think that this would happen to. It came as, as a real shock to me. And just a reminder as the Bible says, be careful when you think you stand, you might fall. And there but the grace of God go I. And I still talk to my friend on a regular basis. He was fired from his job. He had to move to a new community. He laments and he grieves the people he has hurt, the trust he has broken, the church that was, was hurt by this. Uh, and now he's living away from his friends. He's living in a different location. And he's in a world of hurt right now. He's in a world of hurt because of the choices that he made. He recognizes that. It was his choice. It was his fault, his sin. But this is what lust can do. This is what lust will do. And I hope you hear this sermon as from a, hopefully, a loving father, a a, a loving parent who just wants to protect their children from a friend that just wants to see you flourish and be protected from these things. But even for my friend who is struggling right now, there's still hope. There's a story about Jesus and the woman who's caught in adultery. Jesus doesn't condemn her. He says, your life's not not over. It's not over for you. There is yet hope. There is yet forgiveness. I have mercy upon you. And if you've fallen into these kinds of sins, or if you're currently struggling with these kinds of sins, I want you to know that God still loves you, that God wants you to find freedom. Jesus showed love to that woman, but then he told her, go and sin no more. Go be free. Go release yourself from this thing that is weighing you down. And again, if that's you today, I just want to invite you to take one step. Just tell one person. Sin will thrive in the dark, but you'll find healing in the light. 
And my prayer is that the Lord would give each of us the grace and freedom that we need in this area, even this morning.